This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, Anthony Fauci, President Biden's chief medical advisor, suggesting that the U.S. may soon issue guidance easing public health protocols for people who are fully vaccinated. U.S. definitely stepping up its effort to track virus variants with genetic sequencing. Uh, Tim, there is so much going on right now. Yeah, we're watching this play out in real time right now. And we have Robert Thompson, chief executive officer of Clinical Reference Laboratory, joining us on the phone from Lenexa, Kansas. Um, Thanks so much for joining us on this, Bob. Um, How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me. Good. Um, Where do you make of where we are right now when it comes to COVID? Because we've gotten some really good news in in recent days as we've seen number of of new cases and hospitalizations down. But at the same time, when we think about this in the context of, of where we were a few months ago, you know, where we are now is where we were in October and November and things weren't so great then. So our cases nationwide have dropped 74% from the peak, which was only seven weeks ago. Um, And the positive rate has dropped from 13% to last week, I think we were at 4.8%. So indeed, that is really good news. Um, I think everyone's watching to see if the variants, uh, particularly the UK variant, is going to have an impact on the numbers. It's not visible yet. I mean, even if you look at Florida in isolation, which has the greatest number of UK variant cases, they're still dropping pretty fast. So um, I really feel like, you know, we are at an inflection point. um, And I think we're going to continue to see cases decline and the positive rates decline, largely as a result of the natural immunity and that we built up over time. I mean, there's 27 million diagnosed positive cases. Most of the estimates say that it's really three times that many that have actually been exposed. So that gets you to, you know, somewhere around 80 million people that have been exposed and have natural immunity. Then you throw in 40 million that uh, have had the vaccine, then you get to a third of the U.S. population. And I think that's really what we're seeing here in these numbers declining this quickly. So I, we've, you know, obviously this has been kind of path, a path that we've all been on, dealing with the virus, understanding the virus, getting a vaccine, getting a vaccine out, a lot of testing along the way. Um, that's what you guys are about, right? You're involved in testing and you've got a new saliva test out, a COVID-19 saliva test, uh, rapid response test. Tell us about that and um, how it works, what it costs, and what you think this role or these kinds of tests will have the role uh, in terms of us getting COVID under control. So our, um, our test is a saliva-based test, which is much easier to collect and more accurate than uh, other at-home nasal swab tests. Um, it's not technique dependent. Anybody can spit in a tube. So um, I've done really it. Done it well. <laughs> <laughs> so you know we're really uh, trying to take that test and expand access to it. So we've been dealing with universities and employers, um, and today we uh, launched a program with Walgreens, where if you go to the Walgreens Find Care app, we're one of the options for COVID-based testing. Um, and it, it's $119. It's the gold standard testing uh, 
methodology, the RT-PCR test. Um, and, you know, we're really excited about it. I think in this next phase of, of the testing market, there's going to be less of these mass, you know, 500 people drive-through sites. And I think much more of sort of near patient physician office or at-home testing as we migrate to the next phase of managing this pandemic. What's the cost of it? $119. So do you see this as, in terms of, of the reopening here, let's say we do get the majority of people vaccinated here in the United States this summer, do you still see a need for a testing product such as this if, if people are vaccinated on a widespread basis? Uh, yes, and, and let me explain why. So to begin with, we're already seeing tests drop. We're, we're down 34% in this country from the peak, and that's just less symptomatic people showing up for testing. I believe that trend is going to continue. So we're going to see less and less of sort of mass screening, but we're still going to have that 30, whatever the current estimates are about 30% of the population that is not immunized, that has declined to take the vaccine. And you're going to have all the under 18-year-olds who right now are not authorized to take the vaccine. So we're still going to have a pretty big chunk of the population that does not have immunity. And as a result of that, I think we're going to, on a much smaller scale, have to continue to test, again, near patient testing, um, you know, well into, into next year. Hey, Robert, I, I am curious, the variants, will it be able to pick up variants? Yeah, so our test targets a piece of the, of the viral RNA that's very stable. So every week we look at the new variants and we see where the mutations have occurred. None of them have occurred at our target piece of the RNA. So we pick up all of the variants, the South African, the Brazilian, and the UK variants. Very briefly, uh, how long do you envision COVID stays with us? I mean, from a business perspective, how long are you planning on this test being a product? Um, I think we're going to see, you know, it'll continue into next year, but just on a smaller scale. So we've, we've done an enormous uh, number of tests, 500,000 plus so far. And, you know, a lot of those were for universities. A lot of those were for state and local health departments. I think that piece of the business is going to gradually um, fade or maybe not so gradually fade. Um, and what will happen in this place is, right. is this kind of testing, Walgreens, CVS, right. that sort of thing. Hey, got to leave it there. Hey, Bob, thank you so much. Bob Thompson, he's Chief Executive Officer at Clinical Reference Laboratory on the phone from Lenexa, Kansas. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Tesla down more than 22% since the January 26th high after a 743% gain back in 2020. We know, Tim, it was one of the high flyers last year and it was doing really well and then we've seen it pull back this year. Yeah, it's been doing really well. Esha Day is equity markets reporter at Bloomberg News and she joins us on the phone from New York City. The big question is, why has it been doing so well over the last couple of weeks? Um, Esha, why uh, why are we seeing this pullback in Tesla? And I should say, it's now down only about 4%, so really off those lows from earlier today. Hi, and thanks for having me. So yes, that's a great question. And Tesla shares have, uh, you know, recovered somewhat uh, since earlier today. But uh, they did dive pretty sharply today, uh, extending their losses from yesterday. And that was mainly triggered by a tweet from Elon Musk over the weekend 
saying the price of uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, seem to be high. So uh, given Tesla uh, itself announced a $1.5 billion investment in Bitcoin earlier this month, Musk's comments may have hurt uh, Tesla's own investment. All right. So to what part? But well, but and that you know, it's interesting. It's a one and a half billion dollar investment in Bitcoin. But I mean, this is a massive company, a six hundred fifty-seven, almost six hundred fifty-eight billion dollar market cap. So, put in perspective, the Bitcoin exposure versus the Tesla business. That's a great question. Um, you know, as you said, it's a you know one point five billion dollars sounds like a significant amount of money, but in the grand scheme of things, especially when it's Tesla, it's really small change for the company. I mean, this is a company that ended 2020 with almost $19 billion in cash, uh, had an annual uh, adjusted net income of around $2.5 billion. So when I speak to Wall Street analysts, they say that, you know, rather than seeing it as an investment, we should rather see this as a signal from Tesla that uh, it is willing to push new boundaries and, you know, try out new and brave things as it tries to transform the way cars are bought and sold. And given that exposure is so small relative to the company's size, they are not really worried about the short-term volatility risk. But that said, uh, you know, it still has that uh, investor sentiment attached to it. And kind of given uh, Musk is, uh, you know, has this really big cult following, that is definitely playing into the weakness today. How are analysts on Wall Street thinking about Tesla right now? Are they still saying that in general that it's a buy or are they saying, hey, wait a second, this thing went really high really quickly in 2020. We're taking a step back here. Well, um, Tesla is an unusual company, and that I think is reflected in the fact that Wall Street analysts just cannot seem to agree on, uh, you know, whether this company is majorly overvalued or still significantly undervalued. Uh, Wall Street is, even at this point, pretty much split on whether it's a buy or a sell. Some say, you know, it's a sell. It's way overvalued. The stock has run up too soon, too fast. Um, and, you know, it, it, at this point, there are better opportunities elsewhere uh, in the easy place. Uh, but that said, there are some who also say that Tesla has only just gotten started. Uh, the EV transformation that we think will take hold of the auto industry uh, over the next decade or so has only gotten started and the stock has way higher to go. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you, Esha, um, because if I look, if I go pull up the FA function on Tesla on the Bloomberg and take a look, I mean, as I mentioned, it's a 600, almost $658 billion market cap company. Revenues are expected to be in this 2021 year. Uh, about 48 billion, and that's up 54% year over year. I mean, earnings growth is expected to be up 444%. It's still this massive growth story, growth company. Are these expectations realistic for this company? Um, I would say the the overall Wall Street consensus expectations uh, do not seem uh, out of the place at this point. Yes, uh, you know. Uh, no, it's possible that no other auto company has done something like this before, but uh, but Tesla is a very different kind of auto company. That's its ma main play. Uh, you know, Elon Musk has always said that you know even if the growth comes a little slow, uh, when it really takes off, it, it's expected to rise in an in an exponential fashion. Uh, Tesla is expanding in different geographies. Uh, China, as we know, is a huge market. No one has had expected the EV 
a space to explode the way it has exploded over the past couple of years. Right. So, um, from from what we understand, you know, these are unusual numbers, but uh, Tesla has delivered more or less delivered on whatever it has promised so far. Right. So we will see what comes. Yeah, it comes down to those fundamentals. Esha, thank you so much. Esha Day, equity markets reporter at Bloomberg News. Tesla shares they have erased their gain for the year, though, as a result of some of the pullback. It's now down three percent year to date. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, in the magazine this week, an excerpt from a new book out on the secretive world of commodity traders and how they link consumers and investors to global hotspots. And maybe it's a bit of a surprise to those investors, to say the least, Tim. Yeah, to say the least, especially for a group of teachers in Pennsylvania. Exactly. This is uh, the subject of a new book. It's called The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. It's written by Javier Blas and Jack Farchi. It's out in the UK now, out in the US come March. Javier is Bloomberg News Chief Energy Correspondent, joining us on the phone from London, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. Again, this is going straight to Netflix. I'm just saying, Joel. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we try, and I'm sure Javier would be very pleased with that outcome. Uh, uh, as, as our colleague uh, Will Kennedy said uh, yesterday to me, he said, just in case you didn't know um, and don't follow Javier on, on Twitter, uh, he has a book for sale, uh, and it's literally called For Sale. And, and so we were, we were uh, really pleased that we got to excerpt it. And it is sort of an example of, of, you know, like I think what the book will accomplish is pull back the curtain in many ways on, on many markets that you just don't don't even know about. And, and Javier, tell us more about um, um, pensioners who uh, found that they had a little something something in their portfolios that they may not have expected. Well, you know that pension funds are very very conservative. They they usually buy the kind of. Uh, U.S. Treasury that uh, are, are, are not yielding a lot, but you know that you you will never lose money. You do not expect to see U.S. pension funds like uh, teachers in Pennsylvania or police officers in South Carolina or firefighters in West Virginia investing in something that will go via the Cayman Islands into doubling the capital of Ireland into a commodity trader in Switzerland and from there into northern Iraq. And that's exactly what they were putting their money because they were financing Glencore, the world's largest commodity trader. And what they were financing in particular was a deal to buy oil in Kurdistan in northern Iraq and to ship that crude into the global market. When I was reading this, Javier, I kept thinking to myself over and over again, ESG, ESG, ESG. <laughs> like, what What about all these pension funds who are saying we're not making investments that, that violate, you know, the terms of, of how we're thinking about ESG? So, so how do these investments get made in these large pensions? Well, usually they get folded into uh, an outside manager. In this case, was Franklin Talpenton. And, and they usually get folded into emerging market debt. I mean, in, in many of the prospectuses of, of um, the pension funds that we review, this was disclosed as an oil node linked to Iraq. It didn't even say that it was not actually the government, the central government in Iraq in Baghdad, but just an autonomous province in, in the north of the country. Um, I, I just simply think that sometimes there are a small investments. This was only a only, quote-unquote only, $500 million. And I think that sometimes they, they just flow under the radar, just bundle into American market debt. 
Hmm. So Javier, uh, Glencore uh, obviously plays uh, an important role in here and, and also elsewhere in the book. Um, what, did, what did you learn about Glencore in reporting this that you didn't already know? Well, I mean, it's very interesting because we need these commodity traders. Uh, everything that we buy comes from natural resources, and you need the, the commodity traders to buy and, uh, and sell to you. Uh, what, what you learn when you get very close to these companies is that it's a very strange combination. They, they are incredibly hardworking and willing to go to no one else goes. Um, and at the same time, they have that kind of profit-minded only, uh, mixed with a bit of old-fashioned old commercial banking of probably 100 years ago of, of my war is my bone and handshakes and, and personal, personally visiting every client every year and be on the road or on the air for 250 or 300 days a year. But what is more amazing is that they are willing to go literally everywhere. I mean, you look at the list of countries that State Department will tell everyone, do not go there. The commodity traders go there. And, and they also play big roles in politics that sometimes we do not realize. Because for many of these countries, think about the Middle East or some countries in Africa, well, natural resources, money, and power go together. Javier, what do you think is though the most striking, this whole idea that commodity traders can influence history or... And or, I guess I should say, that you've got these what are thought to be pretty safe investors or hoping that they're safe investors and conservative investors, pension investors, that they don't exactly understand maybe what they're investing in. I think that both are very important. I mean, one thing that uh, Jack and I, when we were writing the book, we were trying to achieve. We think that the commodity traders play a big role in the global economy. They play a big role in politics. And because some... In institutional investors, be pension funds or other kinds of institutional investors, are investing with them, providing funds with them. They are also very important to all of us. But mm. what surprises Jack and me writing this and researching it is that very few people know anything about the commodity traders. There are hardly any books about them. Their accounts, in most cases, are secret because they are privately owned companies. And also they are controlled by a very few people. I mean, most right. commodity traders are controlled by the staff or, or a family that, that owns them. So any money that they make, any profit that they make, go in the pockets of a few selected individuals. Like I said, I think it has to go to Netflix or, or something, because like, it's just really explaining how these markets work and peeling back some of the layers. Um, great stuff. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Javier Blas, Chief Energy Correspondent, Bloomberg News from London. Check out his new book, The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources in the UK and coming to the US in March. And of course, our thanks to the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, Joel Weber. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. The economy is a long way from our employment and inflation goals, and it is likely to take some time for substantial further progress to be achieved. We will continue to clearly communicate our assessment of progress toward our goals well in advance of any change in the pace of purchases. 
A nice double dose. Uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell, Charlie Pellet, of course, some highlights from his testimony earlier today. Jay Powell's testimony, of course, in that semi-annual testimony that he does before Congress on the state of the U.S. economy. And Tim really giving some, you know, reminder that he thinks there's progress being made, but we still have a long way to go until we get to kind of a pre-pandemic economy. A.K.A. AKA. We're not raising rates anytime soon. <laughs> Be patient, everyone. Relax, relax. Joining us with more on Jay Powell and Fed policy and really the overall U.S. economy, Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics at Dartmouth College, former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member. He joins us on the phone from Florida. Danny, how are you? I'm great. Always good to talk to you guys on a very interesting day. Well, interesting. I, I thought well, Powell was saying very sensible things. I mean, this is the reality that we're in. Well, it's the right thing to do. Well, talk to us about that. Tell us what was what struck you as being very, very sensible from Jay Powell. Well, I think I think the uncertainty is is very high here. Um, we're seeing the economy recover, but there's clearly clearly the number of people that are claiming benefits, the amount of slack in the economy, and of course the uncertainty going forward about how quickly the vaccinations are going to go, how effective they're going to be, how how how, how firms bounce back. And I think the other one is what kind of long-run changes in behavior are they going to be? Are people going to commute the same as they did? Are they going to go back to cruise ships? All all of that. But particularly, are they going to save more? And I I thought what was interesting was you have a sort of concerted message, which has often not happened, between the central bank and the treasury, which is perhaps not a surprise, and also from the the Council of Economic Advisors from C.C. Rouse. So you're having a concerted view and a consistent view across all the parts. And so often in the past, we've seen them working against each other. So now what we're seeing are the two branches, if you like, of monetary and fiscal policy, essentially saying the same thing. A bit different than in the UK, where where actually on the NPC, members are actually disagreeing with each other about whether they should go to negative rates. And we haven't really heard that in the US. but, But that's a clear thing that's going on in Britain. How do you think that the Fed, and particularly Fed Chair Powell, is or, or should be paying attention to the sharp increase in bond yields that we've seen in recent weeks? Well, I mean, obviously that, that's relevant and to think about it, um, but the scale of that rise I don't think is that significant. But what else should they do? What other alternatives do they have other than trying to get America back to work and try to kind of overcome the, the difficulties that have been caused by this, this, this terrible pandemic? So I think the answer is, you know, you can't do everything. Um, you do what you can do. I mean, think about the story of if we could talk about what's the impact of what the Fed has done to inequality. And Janet Yellen talked about that when she was the chair. But their answer was, well, you can't do much about it. You've probably got to go ahead with this, worry about what's going ahead. In the future, if you have to do something, then you change and you adapt. Same thing with inflation. If you see inflation starting to emerge, deal with it when you get there. But at the moment, you keep doing what they're saying. And I think that's completely right. And we've learned from the past. We learned from the past that actually everybody was too too optimistic about what was coming, too worried about inflation, too optimistic about the growth path of the economy. And they don't want to make that error again. Danny, does it feel like the bond market is playing a little bit of catch up from what the equity markets were seeing a few months ago when we bounced back, you know, from our lows because of uh, the health crisis? Well, 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 maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer that basically what we're seeing in these markets is just um, being everything being pushed by what the central banks are doing. I mean, I, I voted for hundreds of billions of dollars of, 
quantitative easing. And in my head, I have I I, I essentially thought to myself, I'm doing this to raise asset prices. So what we have are markets following what the Fed is doing. They obviously listen carefully to, to Powell's view about, you know, our rates going to go to negative. But really, are we going to do more QE? Are we going to push those markets up? And I think the answer is, for now, the, the story is keep on keeping on. But we just don't really know. I mean, the best answer to what's coming is it depends, right? So maybe maybe the bond markets are, are, are getting a bit, a bit nervous. But you know, I, I think the course is set. I mean, the course is set. Right. Janet Yellen made it absolutely clear the course she's going to follow. Well, you know, it's going to have to understand that. There's a headline that just crossed the Bloomberg, the S&P 500 erasing its 1.8% drop to trade little change. I mean, we're now at our highs of the day. And I feel like, Danny, we have seen this trade over and over and over again the last decade where we get a bit of a pullback. Sometimes we get an official close to 10% correction or an official 10% correction, and then everybody comes back in. Um, Who's right, though, in terms of are market players, are equity investors right to continue to push this market higher? Well, I think think the answer consists of what I've just said. I think equity markets are right in the sense that so, so sit and think, if, if I'm right, which I think I am, <laughs> that the, the central bank and its QE is what's driving the equity markets, then you say, well, how good's the economy? How much time is there going to be over a fiscal package? It will take time to come in. Is the Fed going to go negative? Probably not. Well, what else can it do? The only thing it can do is start is back to QE again. And, and they're not going to taper. They're not going to start pulling out monetary stimulus. So every time that story comes, the equity markets say, okay, I'm with that. And that's when you see the surge again. So I think for now, the story continues. And, you know, it's good to be bullish on equities for the reason we've just said. For how long, though? That's the question. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. So I, mean, I don't think anybody else does. But, you know, to this point, we're now, you know, we're, we're a long way in. And I think but I don't see anything in the, in the short to medium term that's going to be dissuade us from that message because yeah. we have so many people out there who are claiming benefits and are on short time work and you know the, 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 the economy move, needs to move to full employment and I've argued for a very long time that we were nowhere near full employment from 2015 to 2018 so the room to maneuver is high. So I just want to ask you again so you're not worried at all about inflation? No. Okay. No. I mean not not one bit. I mean I think I was while we were while we were on break. I actually went and looked at uh, a number that I like, which is the employment rate, mm-hmm. which today is now back to the level that it was in the first quarter century since the Second World War. We're at 57. We were at 64.7 in 2000, and the U.S. had the worst, uh, the only advanced country between 2000 and 2020. It was the only country that had a declining employment rate. So we're so far, essentially, we're so far from full employment. Forget unemployment, focus on this. So the potential slack in the economy is immense. So inflation arises when, when, there's, you know, when the economy is tight. There's no sign of that. Now, obviously, people might say that this is about, what's coming is about structural things. But all the other economies in the world have been faced by the same structural things, like technology and um, globalization and so on. So they, they, they've all done much better. So I think the potential for the UK, US to grow in a non-inflationary environment is, is strong. And in many senses, that's what Powell has been reflecting. And he reflected back to 2015 to 18, when the Fed had a wrong view of the economy, saying that capacity was less than that. 
and raised rates and shouldn't have done and killed growth off. So they've now, in a sense, come to the position that I've, that I've put forward. The unemployment rate doesn't tell us much of what's going on. The employment rate looks terrible, 55, 54, uh, 57.5% uh, and overestimated because of all these weirdnesses in the labor market about people wrongly being classified. But, but that's a disastrous number. There's huge amounts of slack. Inflation doesn't rise. And I've probably been on Bloomberg 50 times over the last decade when people say to me, inflation's coming, isn't it? And I've always said, no, it isn't. And it's certainly not coming from wage inflation, but even though there's weirdnesses in the data. Does it, does it come from a $1.9 trillion spending package that could, de- could be deployed very soon? Well, the answer, the answer is that we clearly all the stimulus that we saw and the, and the cutting in rates and the doing of the QE was meant to create inflation, but it was meant to create inflation against the deflationary shock. So if you end up, yes, the answer is, but the potential deflationary shock that we're seeing pulls prices into negative territory. So this simply restores it. Of course, there's a point. That's the point of the stimulus. But the issue is 2% seems a goal that's very much way off. And um, the, the, the story actually is we know very well what to do if inflation rises in a significant way, but it hasn't. But yeah. the point of QE and the stimulus is to create inflation. But the question is, to what extent do we have a major deflationary shock going on? And the answer is we do. Hey, Danny, let me ask, go back to what you talked about, the labor market. You talked about all the slack in the labor market, right? And and I think the Fed yep. and certainly Jay Powell has been very clear about, you know, we've got to improve those numbers, get people back to work. Will we need all of those workers. And I just think about the increased and ramped up digitization of our society. And I just wonder, will all of those workers ultimately be needed in our post-pandemic economy? Well, a couple of things. The first thing is both Janet Yellen and Steve Rouse talked about the importance of jobs. And we know that uh, capital, we know that capital intensive industries and technological change can actually be labor enhancing. Think of all the, you know, the, the people who now sell iPhones and laptops and involved in that kind of technology. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, we can actually, and Janet's made it clear that she's interested in that, you can actually think of stimulus where you try and encourage jobs. And so the issue is what's the, I mean, for people in Bloomberg to think about, what you basically are going to always think about is What's the relative price of labor compared to the relative price of capital? And if in a Biden administration, and Janet's made this clear, they're interested in giving a subsidy to encourage the use of people, of workers, and make the relative price of workers lower. Now, obviously, you can debate about the minimum wage and so on, but there's an issue about can you encourage people to be more productive, all of that sort of stuff. So I think the answer is that um, we can make capital labor enhancing as well. Um, and if you, and in a way, I like to sort of pose this question. In 2000, and you asked me this question, where are the new jobs going to come from? Right. I don't think I would have had a possible clue of saying it. But if you look, where have most, many of those jobs come from? They're, they've come from technologically advanced places. There's Tesla and there's electric cars and, and all of that. So I think the answer is the digital age may well, and think right. of the green jobs. You can make green jobs very labor intensive. You can have people going out insulating houses. So, so the answer is with a bit of thought and interest yeah. and care, you can actually make the future labor enhancing, not labor hurting. Right. It's something that I've talked about that with the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. We've got all these 
you know, countries spending so much on COVID relief and pumping a lot of money into economies, we could do that and create green jobs at the same time and deal with two massive problems. Um, good stuff. Danny B. Well, Danny Blanche Flower, Professor of Economics at Dartmouth, former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member, joining us from Florida. I'm assuming it was warm there. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yesterday we learned it was 70 degrees there in the afternoon from one of our guests. Yeah. Uh, but hey, that's better than New Hampshire, right? I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Just about 11 minutes uh, left in today's trading session. Carol Master, Tim Stenovic, and as Charlie mentioned, the S&P U.S. stocks in general roaring back after Jay Powell of the Federal Reserve basically saying, listen, folks. Slow down, slow down. I'm not too worried. I'm not going to take chill out. You know, my foot off the gas. Things are going to be okay. easy. It's, it's gonna, all good. It's all. It's going to still take a little while to get back to normal. So, stocks are pretty much just off their best levels of the session. We have seen quite a move back. Yeah, we really have. Ryan Dietrich is chief market strategist at LPL Financial. He joins us on the phone right now from Charlotte, North Carolina. LPL Financial has just about $810 billion under management. Um, Ryan, what do you make of today's trade? Yeah, Tim, how about that reversal, right? Yeah. I mean, NASDAQ down nearly 4% at the lows and has a shot at being green. And we can say goodbye to the five-day losing streak on the S&P 500, right? What got us, when you looked at that five-day losing streak we're in the midst of, Stocks are only down about 1.5% during those five days. It was a relatively modest five-day losing streak. For instance, last year in 2020, 35 separate days saw a worse drop of 1.5%. Um, so it's just kind of all about context, right? And again, what did Jay Powell say? I don't think anything that we didn't expect. He's still quite dovish. Low rates are here to stay, and that's what the market wanted to hear. And now the losing streak, um, like I said, on the S&P looks like it's over. Was it all Jay Powell, in your view? Or was it people all of a sudden saying, oh, wow, that stock that I've been interested in is now a few percentage points cheaper? Or, you know, in the case of some of those high flyers, a lot cheaper. And that was a buying opportunity. Yeah, you're right, Carol. I mean, I, I think it was with Jay Powell kind of sparked it, right? You think about a beach ball, you put it under the water. Once you let go, it gets moving. Once it gets moving, it really pops up. And that's, you know, Jay Powell kind of released the beach ball effect, so to speak. But at the same time, what have we been seeing, right? I mean, just continued strong manufacturing numbers, services numbers. We just had a really strong earnings season that's wrapping up. And oh, by the way, now Jay Powell said that, you know, monetary policy is still here. And we all know there's probably another fiscal plan coming in March of at least $1.5 trillion. So all those things combined kind of said that, you know, hey, stocks just don't feel like going down, and it's something that we should not ignore. Okay, but, but there are signs of froth in the market, oh, yeah. right? From a, technical, from a technical perspective, what are those signs? Where are you seeing them? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, when you look at market technicals, they're honestly pretty strong, Tim, but I kind of say a cousin to technicals is sentiment, right? That's kind of in the price. And, and we've seen just huge flows uh, coming into equity funds. We've seen very historically low put-to-call ratios. You know, there are clearly some signs that there's a little too much excitement that's out there, and that's okay, right? I mean, after a 76% rally, given where we were this time about a year ago, I think it makes sense. People are a little excited, but it makes sense to us also if you just overlay this bull 
bull market that started last March with the one that started in 2009. They almost trek perfectly with each other. But that one in early 2010, you had a 10% correction and some sideways consolidation for a good part of the middle of 2010. We think that could play out once again here. So Ryan, how much of the trade that we're seeing and the comeback, how much of that is banking on what we see in the second half of this year? Yeah, well, if you look at who's been leading, I think you have to say a lot. It's those cyclicals, right? Look at today. I mean, energy stocks, once again, are doing well. The cyclical value, your energy, financials, as the yield curve keeps steepening. What's the 10-year doing? 10 years up a little bit today, but the yield curve, 210, keeps steepening. Those are all telling us that, hey, the market is betting on a very significant reopening, and that's why the cyclical value. I've been coming on with you guys for a couple months saying, you know, last year we liked growth a lot at LPL Research. Right. This year we've kind of changed our tune a little bit, saying, listen, cyclical value makes sense finally to maybe get some uh, strength, and that is exactly what's happened. But before everyone gets way excited about financials, for instance, Carol, they've gone nowhere for 14 years. Okay, <laughs> They're where they were in 2007. So let's not get too excited here, but that's bullish from a longer-term point of view because, hey, they haven't gone anywhere for 14 years. We know tech's up a ton, and we don't really have a problem with tech technology, but if you're looking for something that's kind of still beaten up and hadn't gone anywhere, my oh my, financials still look pretty Mm. good to us here. I get the value argument, but if the growth is in the growth players or the momentum players, why wouldn't you continue to make your bets there? Yeah, well, the way we're constructing our portfolios for our more than 17,000 advisors, we are kind of doing a two-pronged approach, right? We, we don't have a problem with technology and communication services. They kind of got us to the party, but we're much more open to the idea of taking a little bit of profits there and adding to your, um, your, your cyclical value names, industrials, materials, and financials. I mean, look what materials. I come on to you guys for a while talking about copper. That sounds kind of boring. Copper's up, you know, another 3% today, nine-year highs. If copper is strong like it's been for several months, that tells us a few things. Maybe Mainly, the global economies on firm footing and likely higher rates and those cyclical values should probably do well. And copper is just blowing up again today. How are you looking at the rise in the uh, tenure, the yield? Yeah. Yeah, that's the story of the week, isn't it? Everybody's wondering, where does a 10-year go to get too high to knock stocks off their rally? We think there's still a ways to go. I mean, the bottom line is this. A little bit of inflation would be okay. I mean, the Fed chairperson Powell just said that today, right? A little bit of inflation he's okay with. The 10-year yield to us is suggesting, again, a likely stronger economy, more stimulus. So we've got a target of about 175 on the 10-year by the end of this year, which would be a little you know, a little bit higher, we're at 40 basis points higher than where it is. But we think that'd be perfectly normal. And let's not forget, it wasn't that long ago the 10-year is up around 3%. I know it feels like a lifetime ago in a lot of ways, but a little higher trending 10-year yield does suggest, again, probably an improving economy in our view. Where don't you want to be right now? Yeah, this well, great question there. Those defensives, you know, your utilities and your REITs, kind of some of those areas that are that are this, uh, pharmaceuticals that are just more defensive by nature. They haven't done quite as well. Um, that's kind of where we see. Also, I've been at LPL for five years. We haven't liked Europe for the five years I've been here. We're still a little bit underweight Europe. We like emerging markets, and we like Japan uh, for a little more international flavor. But uh, Europe is an area we still think is probably going to underperform. We did see, though, travel stocks over in the U.K. As the U.K. economy is opening up, you don't see a play there? Yeah, I mean, there always potentially could be some type of a play, but the overall dynamics as we look at Europe are still slowing. There's still some some demographic issues and earnings growth. I mean, you're looking at 35% earnings growth this year in emerging markets, leading the overall global resurgence that we're seeing in earnings. And we just think EM is yeah. still probably the better place from a diversified global portfolio point of view. All right, got to run. Ryan, thank you so much. Ryan Dietrich, Chief Market Strategist at LPL Financial, uh, with us from Charlotte, North Carolina. And this, Tim, on a day when quite a big swing when it comes to those major equities. Yeah, NASDAQ was down as much as 3.9%, down half a percentage point. 
Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.